This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Our reliance on digital technologies and media accelerated dramatically beginning in March 2020, when we could no longer gather in offices for work, in schools for learning, or even in churches for worship— we found ways to make do through screens and chats and webinars. Even as communities and institutions started to open back up in late spring or summer months of 2020, the increased reliance on technology persisted and it continues to influence how we live, work, pray, and communicate. But that shift was not new. Again, it was an acceleration of trends that started long ago. Without diving too much into the historical factors, I wanted to share a conversation in today's show that focuses on what we're seeing, and especially the digital landscape, what is going on with us in our everyday lives, and what this might mean for where we are heading. So I invited my friend and colleague, Brett Robinson, who is a media scholar, to talk a little bit, kind of informally, about all these things with me. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Brett. Hi, Lenny. All right, so we're going to talk a little while, Brett, about what's going on. And I actually want to start our conversation with a text exchange, which is both, I think, ironic and kind of appropriate, given what we're going to talk about today. But back in March or April of 2020, I texted you to ask if you thought there was some kind of danger in creating too many of these like at-home resources during the pandemic you know, so many of them that might be of such high quality that maybe people would eventually question whether we really need to get together in actual physical gatherings anymore, like in-person religious services or traditional education or whatever. And your response to me was, not really. And then you said, you couldn't have come up with a more effective digital detox program if you tried. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about what you meant by that then and how you're thinking about it now. Yeah, I just always thought there was a need, uh, given the amount of time we spend online on our devices, to have moments of rest, of contemplation, to remove ourselves from the stream of information that can be quite overwhelming at times. And I think it's become especially apparent now. And for many years, I thought that the solution was just to sort of preach that gospel of, hey, remember the Sabbath. Hey, remember to unplug every once in a while. But it seems to me that perhaps the, I don't know, disease becomes the cure when we are forced to use it almost incessantly 24-7 to stay connected to work and to the rest of the world, that it forces the question whether we wanted to confront it or not, of whether or not this is helping or hindering our ability to relate to one another, to build community. And I think we're at that point where we're seeing its limitations. And that's good. That's a good thing. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way. I imagine you do. Like, I'm just kind of fatigued by all this stuff, right? The We're on Zoom right now, just so people who are listening know, like, Brett and I are talking over Zoom because we don't spend a lot of time, even though we work together in the same place. And I just think, like, I've had enough of Zoom. Like, I hope it just goes away forever. I don't think I'm courting the company right now to sponsor our program. They're probably not going to become the new sponsor of Church Life Today. But I remember like as a kid, just thinking about like video phone and like how cool that would be if it actually happened. And now that it's actually happened, I want it to stop. Right. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, have we gotten like what we 
what we wanted, like some of these things that we've been moving towards and desiring. And now that we have them, they wear us out and we don't actually like what we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good reason to think of media kind of as an ecology, because, you know, as I think about video phones, I think about FaceTime, for example, and um, my mom. 800 miles away, being able to see her grandkids. And so you, you have these benefits that you don't want to necessarily lose. But as you said, at some point, you cross the threshold, especially when you're doing it all the time, and you get fatigued. And so I think the real kind of challenge or question or discernment is, uh, at what times and in what situations are these things appropriate? Obviously, now, we don't have a lot of choice. But uh, I think there are other occasions where we can make some very intentional deliberate decisions about whether we send a text versus a greeting card versus visit somebody versus make a phone call. You've talked in the past, I know, through our work here at the Institute about the importance of the good old-fashioned telephone Mm -hmm. um, aimed to keeping parish communities intact and in touch. And as easy as it would be to send out a blast email or or even host a Zoom call, to get that one-on-one, you know, telephone call and hear somebody else's voice and know that they're thinking about you, that goes a long way. So that media has a different effect than, you know, than this Zoom, for example, or even radio for that matter. Um, so the more of these channels that proliferate, I think the more we need to really be thinking about not just how we relate to one another through them, but how they relate to one another. Yeah, the telephone's really kind of an interesting point here because it almost seems like this antiquated technology, right? Like we all carry around phones in our pockets and we call them phones, but very rarely do we use them as phones. We use them for everything else more than we use them as phones. And, you know, you're talking about like your mom being able to see and talk to her grandkids, your kids, which we do that with like my father also and our kids. But what I found with, with our kids is when we're doing FaceTime, they want to get in the frame and like kind of stare at the image on the phone at my father. You know, he's he's over 60, so it's just the top of his head. Like I think most people, uh, no offense to anybody there, but like most people over 60, like they only get the top of their head in the frame because they're looking too low in any event. Like my kids are just staring at that and staring at themselves in the picture on the on the iPhone or whatever it is. And I just think like all the times when I was a kid, my dad literally made me talk on the phone to my grandparents, which I never really fully wanted to do, but I had to talk, right? Like in my grandmother would talk to my grandfather, never got on the phone, but my grandmother would talk to me and I had to talk back. And I don't know, my kids, like they look at the phone and they almost like perform, but they don't talk to my dad, you know? Yeah, no, that's really, that reminds me of something also from, from my childhood, but we moved to Idaho when I was a kid and my family was in Pittsburgh. And long distance charges back then were quite expensive. So calling wasn't practical to have conversations with, with granny and pap pap. So instead, my frugal parents said, we're going to make tape recordings and send them to uh, your grandparents. And so they would, they would sit us down at age four and five and say, okay, talk to pap pap and granny. Now, it was hmm. awkward for a five-year-old. But I think in some ways, and this gets back to the media kind of ecology question of like, you know, speech versus seeing versus the way these different media convey us and our messages to one another. But we were forced to like tell stories. We had to come up with what I did yesterday and what happened at school. And and that, I think cultivating that, especially in young kids is so important as you think about their development. And you're right. I think putting kids in front of screens to look at each other while it 
facilitate some contact with that grandparent or relative stunts another area of relationship, which is that ability to just to tell stories, to communicate in that way. So in, in a sense, by turning off the video, uh, we didn't have the option, but but the audio only experience, and we still have those tapes. That's the other cool thing. Do you? We still listen to those. My mom <laughs> has them on CD now because, of course, my grandparents have passed away, but she listens to them in the car. It just reminds her of, I mean, orality has a really powerful way of bringing you into the moment in a mm. way a photo really doesn't. Mm. Uh, the hearing part, faith comes by hearing, right? It's so interior and so primary. It's really powerful. You know, what you just said there about like being brought into the moment and the way orality can do that. It seems that to me, like the appeal of the video connection, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever it is, is that it actually promises something like immediacy, right? Like I'm, again, we're connecting on Zoom right now. Like we're looking at each other and talking to each other. It's, we're kind of face to face, like we're kind of here together. And yet it's mediated. Like there's something between us. There's this screen. And I don't know, I think I see this, I feel it more in myself because I spend time on Zoom meetings like you do and a lot of people listening do right now. But, you know, going back to thinking about my kids in front of the FaceTime call with my dad, I don't know, it feels in some ways, I think, to them like immediacy, like you're there with Pappy. But it's, I don't know if it's right to say it's fully an illusion, but it's not real immediacy. And it's strange that when you take away a part of that, right, you take away the video and you're left with just the audio when you have to talk to each other. Like we're saying now, oddly, paradoxically, that creates a more, potentially a more intimate connection. You're not there together, but there's, I don't know, there's like the work to have to be present together that maybe seeing each other through the screens takes away that work. And because it takes away that work, it's less, I don't know, is it less human? What do you think? Well, I, you said illusion. That's the one that for me, because there's an old sci-fi story by E.M. Forster. It was written in early 1900s called The Machine Stops. And it's about this future society where everybody lives in these isolated pods and they're, they're, all their needs are met. Everything gets delivered. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> and they have these video screens and they, that's how they keep in touch with relatives, although they don't do it that much. They're far more interested in like learning all sorts of things about the world. So they engage in what's the equivalent of like a worldwide web. They look at lectures and seminars and things on these screens. And I'd, I'd be curious because I think, you know, that story was written a hundred years ago before television. So, wow. you know, your point is a good one because I think the reason perhaps that kids maybe aren't having the sort of full experience when they're on a FaceTime call of presence, partly for obvious reasons, but partly because the metaphor we've all been acclimated to is television. So television is something where you perform, where you tell these sort of elaborate stories, sort of really kind of fantastical stories. We could even say these days that the news is kind of a fantastical story. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a horror show and a fantastical story, yeah. So when, when that's the metaphor playing in your mind and you get on screen, well, what do you think, what am I supposed to do here, right? Am, am, am I supposed to perform? Am I supposed right. to entertain? And and like you said, with kids, that's what they usually default to. Watch me do my somersault or look, you know. So the idea that I would get on here, uh, have sort of an intimate, you know, sort of conversation, tell stories, you know, tell this person how much I love them, how much I miss them, isn't necessarily the first thing you think of, mm -hmm. um, the metaphors we've been given. 
This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with my colleague, Brett Robinson, who's the Director of Communications and Catholic Media Studies in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Brett and I are just talking about kind of the current increased reliance on digital media, especially since the outbreak of COVID-19 and the shift to more digital technologies or our use of them. So, Brett, one of the other things I'm thinking about kind of along with this is... I suppose like the ubiquity of all the things, (laughs) the ubiquity of all the things. So as the expansion of both the capability of digital media occurs and our need to use it to do basic things like in some, you know, for a lot of kids schooling, for a lot of us work, for staying in touch with family members, etc. I just think about like, I'm just wondering about like the the negative side, the dark side of being able to do whatever we want, wherever we want. Like we can work from anywhere. And there's some benefits to that. We can work on anything at any time. Kids can do school from anywhere. We can connect with anyone at any time from any place. So this ubiquity, it seems like a, a kind of freedom and like it's a gain, like we've gained some kind of power. But I know, I mean, you've kind of taught me this and we've talked about this before, like with everything that a technology gives you, it also takes something away. So it amplifies and it amputates, is I think the way you've put it, drawing from Marshall McLuhan, right? So I don't know, like this access to, through all this media, to do all this stuff from all these places, like what do you think it's taking away in the midst of all it seems to be giving us? Well, I, I think it can be disorienting for sure. I think it, in some ways, some of the obvious things it might take away are, again, sort of the immediacy of, of human contact, but maybe more specifically, the ability to read signs, particularly the signs uh, that are around us, naturally speaking. Hmm. I was reminded yesterday of the story in Daniel where Susanna is violated and there's a trial and they're able to trick the kind of false accusers in uh, and, and sort of lead them into their own trap by, by asking what kind of tree yeah. this crime is under. And it's, it's sort of, it's very subtle and you wouldn't normally maybe even notice this, but they knew the difference, for example, between an oak and a sumac tree. Now that, w- that, that whole case and Susanna's honor and morality, everything hinged on that identification. Now, how many, Kids, teenagers, even adults today would be able to look at an oak and a sumac and tell you which one is which. So I think that inability or that loss of, let's call it memory, to read the most natural and kind of primary signs around us is the disorienting part. So as we traffic more and more in virtual signs and emoticons, what are, what are they, emojis? Um, <laughs> He's such an old man. Come on, you know they're emojis. <laughs> Uh, but the more we do that, we, we certainly create a new grammar for ourselves to understand and to explain some things to each other. What does this abbreviation mean or that? But And maybe it's clever or cool that we've developed this new vocabulary in the digital environment. But to your question, what are we losing? I mean, I think we're, we're losing some of the grammar of our natural environment. And that's yeah. first, which is, again, why I think with kids, whether it's the orality piece or just coming to know nature first. I'm not saying, you know, the kid never is able to look at a screen or should never play with a computer, but there is a natural sort of human way in which we come to know the world that we can't short circuit or bypass or we 
imperil, you know, sort of our own kind of awareness and, and perception of the world and, and ultimately of, of, you know, our capacity to hear, you know, God's voice. Yeah. You know, I think like from the time I was a kid, I've, especially in like religious contexts, but maybe in others too, been preached to about the dangers of compartmentalization. And I think what's meant by that is like being one person in one space and then a different person in another space. So you kind of lose your integrity and character, you're sort of shape-shifting. But I don't know, that message was just so strong that I think I, I think for me, and I think for a lot of people of probably our generation, I mean, you're older than me, so maybe you're in a different, not that much older than me. <laughs> I just want to point that out on, on the air. But in any event, like for a lot of us, that message was in some ways internalized, like don't compartmentalize, don't break things up, don't have a place for everything, just allow everything to be in every place at every time. And I've wondered about this, I think for myself, like even more, even before I start thinking about my kids, like actually the importance and the health of being able to compartmentalize, to keep certain things in certain places, this is the time and the space and the place for work. This is the time and the space and the place for home to be attentive to the people here. And I think, you know, the greatest kind of assault on that separation of time and space has been my smartphone because I can check email all the time, which I try not to. It now takes like an intentional act not to do that. But when I was a freshman in college, I remember it was only at the end of the day I was able to like go on my computer and check my email. And like it was like going to the mailbox. Like now the messages came, but the messages come all the time. So, I'm wondering about like trying to recover this skill of compartmentalization, which sounds like totally against everything I had been sort of educated to believe when I was younger in very soft ways, don't compartmentalize. But this ubiquity thing of being able to do all things at all times and maybe even being expected to, it seems to not want anything to be compartmentalized. Yeah, I mean... I think we need to have a serious discussion about not just me and you, but culturally about what we mean when we say the kids are doing school online mm. or we, I am working now. I mean, my kids walk into my home office every day and see me staring at a screen and that's work to them. Now, it wasn't that much different 30 years ago. I mean, I remember my father bringing home, you know, stacks of paper. In other words, the example there being that work had a materiality to it, all right? There were files and documents and, and things that you could put your hands on and put in your inbox and, and then in your outbox and you knew it was done. But the other one that really, I think, is insidious is the, the, the mother or the father, for that matter, at home, on the phone, doing anything from banking to setting up an appointment for the car to go in or whatever the app du jour is for, their, for that moment of productivity is in completely invisible to the child. So all the child sees is that the parent on the phone and the attention being diverted. They have no idea what's happening there. Now, again, when we were kids, if my mom was on the phone, we, she didn't have apps, so she was talking to people. And I heard her making the appointment. I heard her literally hmm. calling up and getting her bank balance and pressing buttons. So there was a visibility and explicitness to the activity. And I knew this is what was happening at this moment. And we, we forget, you know, as these sophisticated adults with these sophisticated tools, we don't pay attention to the message that we're sending to, to kids. I know we keep coming back to kids, but I think this is the, the question is, is what, 
how are we forming the next generation? I think we don't actually know. There was this movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma that looked at all these techniques that Facebook and others are using to manipulate us psychologically. And they had this kind of stand in family kind of play act, you know, what the teenager was doing and thinking. And I don't think they actually know. I don't think we actually know. I think we need to talk to kids about what they're feeling and seeing and, and understand these definitions that we take for granted, like work and school and these different compartments that we live in. They don't see the compartments they see. All they see is this flat sort of digital terrain where everything happens on. So there's a great book. I don't mean to go on and on, but there's a great book called No Sense of Place by Josh Myrowitz. And Myrowitz's argument was that with the advent of television, we lost those boundaries and those compartments. So the secret conversations that boys had in locker rooms at school were now on full display because you could see it in a television program the conversations that parents used to have in private when the kids were in bed are now on full display because we can see those in a television program. So we lost those kind of social boundaries. And I think you could extend Meyerowitz's argument into what you're talking about, which is now even some of these cultural and economic boundaries. And I think that's the conversation I think we need to have is what is work going to look like in the era of automation? I mean, there's, there's statistics that suggest that the labor force participation rate right now, which is around 60-60, so 60% of men, 60% of women are working, may drop to 30-30 in the next 20 years. So what are the other 70% going to be doing? And that's where we need to talk about you know, leisure. What are true forms of leisure? If we are freed up to do these other things, what are we doing with our time? And is it human? This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm joined by Brett Robinson, my colleague in the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where he directs communications and our Catholic Media Studies program. We're talking about the increased reliance on digital media, especially since the outbreak of COVID-19, its immediate and perhaps long-term effects. Not COVID-19, but digital media. <laughs> we don't know what the long-term effects are. We're not qualified to talk about that. So, you know, just thinking about like that work that work-life balance, or maybe it's not even balance, like the nature of work that you're talking about and place and having no sense of place. Like, I'm also kind of mindful of maybe the healthy disorientation or reorientation that has occurred from being loosed from the dependence on certain routines for especially work. We'll leave school to the side here, but I'm, I'm thinking of my, my sister-in-law who right before the COVID, you know, COVID became the thing, she had moved to Indianapolis, was helping to really organize this startup that was starting to have some success. And, you know, that was like in late fall. And then in early spring, everybody had to leave the office and start working remotely. Well, the kind of work they do, they actually can do a lot of the remote work, a lot of their customer service and things like that. But it actually forced or invited the leaders of this startup, this company who are starting to scale up to think about like, what do we use that actual space for that we've always had as an office that we, I guess, and they would say like in our imaginations, we always thought we had to have this space, but now they're thinking more intentionally about what do we need to gather for? What's the good of gathering? When do we do it? Who needs to do it? And are there other ways to kind of organize our work? So that becomes maybe that, you know, that brings us back to where I started and it's a little bit of a dangerous, it could be a little bit of a dangerous thing because we start to de-emphasize and deprioritize face-to-face encounter, the sort of spontaneity that comes from being around other people. 
But I also wonder like about that intentional kind of thinking away from just just inherited patterns to think about more intentionally about what are we doing when we're together? When do we need to be together and how? Yeah, and I think there's an important, yeah, there's an important distinction there between space and place. There's, you know, we have commercial space for companies to occupy, but as human beings, we make meaning from spaces and they become places. And those meanings come from, like you said, those those routines, those rituals, those behaviors that become part of that place. A home is very much like that. I, I think, and I saw an informal survey of companies, it's interesting you brought that up, asking them basically this question, which is, what's the plan going forward, given the fact that a lot of companies are actually finding the remote work is more productive for a lot of people. But on the flip side, they're also finding higher levels of burnout, because we're always working in a sense, in a way that we weren't before. And then that issue of commercial space came up or, or office space. And some kind of weird solutions I've heard are things like, you know, working remotely but then gathering maybe twice a year in Puerto Rico for a company <laughs> gathering. Um, so, so that would be interesting, I guess, turning kind of, but in, in, a, in a sort of, I guess, dark way, it seems like that's yet another way in which work life or, or work becomes or infiltrates or colonizes leisure. So, I mean, Puerto Rico is where I'm supposed to go on vacation, not where I'm supposed to go to, for a meeting. But that said, I mean, I think creative possibilities abound and some of the upsides would be things like returning to some form of, in a strange way, kind of localism in the sense that if you've got people who don't need to be constantly transferred and commuted to various parts of the country or the city, that the local community regains some of its vigor because you're not just a bedroom community. It's not a bunch of people that sleep there and get in a car and drive 45 minutes into the city, but it's actually where they live and work and play. And then they maybe start to imagine new and in some ways older forms of community that might flourish in yeah. that. Well, we just have like a couple of minutes, Brett. So let me just bring up a big topic then. Thinking about, just because we have a short amount of time, that means big topic. But thinking about, we've been t- talking about like work, a little bit about education and, and kids. But uh, I mean, you and I have have also talked a little bit or even texted a little bit about our life as worshiping people. So as Catholics and the place of the parish and the sacramentality of the faith and the importance of actually being there, right? Non, well, it's still mediated presence, but not in the same way, like through a screen or just in all these other ways that we've had to kind of do our church thing at various times in these last few months. What are your thoughts on that? Like the importance of being there, being in actual place with actual people, with actual stuff. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And you may not know this, but I had a difference of opinion with you early on. I think you had said, again, going back to our streams of texts and tweets and so on, where where we abide, um, <laughs> that you weren't watching mass online with your family, that you were, you know, reading the readings and, and having some kind of time in your home to dedicate to worship. And I remember writing a column for Catholic News Service where I said, you know, television mass has become kind of a new ritual in our house. And I never thought I'd say it, but, you know, it's it's been something of a good thing. I, I recalled a childhood story where I there was snow in Pittsburgh. We couldn't get to mass. And my parents said, okay, we're going to watch it on TV. And this, I was shocked by this. And it was a huge part of my own formation to see that my parents would take it this seriously, that 
they would sit us down in front of a TV to watch it, even if we couldn't get there physically. So obviously the physical presence is preferred and necessary for all the reasons we've mentioned, that we need those inputs and that sensory experience to be fully human in that space. So, you know, I, I think we're in a really difficult place in terms of whether or not people are going to come back after they've become accustomed to watching mass online. And my other fear, which is a little more psychological, again, goes back to the comments we made about kids and FaceTime and the way in which it's really a television metaphor. So again, TV has always been about fantasy, about playing on our imaginative faculties. So to watch mass in that context, I think sends the wrong message that this is a fantasy, a story that's not rooted in the other faculty of the soul, which is memory. Hmm. And go to mass to remember, do this in memory of me. We go to mass to remember the salvation history and, and the history. So when we sever those two and it becomes predominantly imaginative exercise, that's dangerous. And actually I shouldn't say, I shouldn't blame that on zoom or anything that's happened in the last year. That's been really one of the products of television over the last 50 years is that sever and severing of imagination and memory, the faculties of our soul that really in balance are the things that, you know, help us grow closer to God. Very good. How about we end there with a, a word on the Catholic Mass there and also a kind of peace offering to Zoom, which you just offered, since I was critiquing Zoom from the beginning. So now we've ended in, in a place of peace. All right. Well, thanks, Brett. It's been a good talk. Maybe we can continue it again with other people listening at some other point. Excellent. All right. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.